0: So who wrote the Bible? Well, my name is Norton, I'm one of the pastors at New Denver, and that's the question that we explored in part one of this series, People of the Book, and the answer is not God. Uh, Now, at some level, as a person of faith, I believe in a God, and I believe that He reveals Himself to us, and that He inspired men and women to write things down, and that these Writings became significant for helping us to understand who this God is and, and what He's like. Uh, the Apostle Paul even said one, at one point, he writes, that all Scripture, all of these writings that we're discussing are God-breathed, as if God's Spirit breathed on these men and women, these authors, and, and gave them the insight and the courage and the aptitude and the inspiration to write these books, But we still need to talk about these human authors and the very human origins of these writings. Who were these authors? What do we know about them? Why did they write the books that they did? And so in part one of this series, the last message, I give you three very general answers. There are 66 different books that make up the Bible. And uh, number one, we know a lot about some of the authors, and we talked about some of those examples. Uh, Number two, there are some books of the Bible that are associated with well-known people, but it was likely someone else actually wrote the book, uh, right? Sometimes Paul used a secretary to help write his letters. Uh, A scribe named Baruch is the one who collected and edited and put Jeremiah's messages into writing. Um, And then number three, for some books of the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, we just have no idea who wrote the book. We just don't know. The author isn't clarified anywhere. So we just don't know. And, and I ended the message by saying, I don't think this should discourage us or, or raise suspicions about the Bible. It often does because we're modern people, right? And, and sometimes we get obsessed with precision and accuracy when it comes to journalistic reporting. That's how journalism is done today. So clarity of of authorship and clarity of sources is really important in our culture, especially when there's all kinds of debates about facts and truth. But we need to realize it was very different in the ancient world. Precision and and clarity of authorship was not important. They just weren't important values. And we don't know the authors of most significant works, of literary literature and history from the ancient world, and that doesn't undermine those writings at all. In fact, most of what we know about ancient Egypt or ancient Assyria or, or ancient cultures in the ancient Near East, it simply comes from anonymous writings. So, so the writings of the Bible actually fit into exactly what we would expect from ancient sources regarding this question of authorship. Now. Uh, There are some very unique and surprising ways that the manuscript writings of the Bible are preserved, and and we're going to see that stands in stark contrast to the way other manuscripts from the ancient world are preserved, and so we'll get into that issue in, in a couple of weeks. But when it comes to authorship, not knowing some of the biblical authors or at least all the details about who they were, that actually lends some weight and some credence to their credibility and to their authenticity. It doesn't take away from it. Now, in this supplemental podcast, uh, we're going to dig a little deeper today. And I've got two things that I think it would be helpful to talk about, to to dig deeper into. Uh, First is some resources, and then second, the issue of agenda. Uh, So first... Some of you might have heard the first message and be wondering, okay, in light of the three categories you gave us of authorship, right? Remember, we know some of the authors with a lot of confidence. That's number one. Number two, other books are associated with an author, but may have been written by someone else. And then number three, other books we just don't know. In light of all that, you might be wondering, well, how do we apply that to each individual book? Like, how do I know? Which book fits into which category? When I read a specific book in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, how do, you, how do I know if, if this is one of those books that has a clear author, if this is one of those books where it's more nuanced than that, it's associated with someone, but it may have been written by someone else, or, or this is one of those books where we just have no idea at all? Um, in other words, is there a resource that gets very specific about addressing this issue of authorship with respect to each individual book, all 66 books of the Bible. If you wanted to do more reading or studying about these specific examples, or, or maybe you just wanted to have a resource available so that whenever you did read part of the Bible and you wanted to learn more about the author of that part, what resource uh, might I suggest to you? Well, for starters, <clears throat> I would say you have to be really discerning here. Uh, because the great thing about this information age that we live in is that there are so many resources and so much information literally available at our fingertips. Uh, and the terrible thing. <laughs> about this information age that we live in is that there are so many resources and so much information available at our fingertips. And a little bit of it is really good and a lot of it is not helpful at all. So you have to be really discerning. And when it comes to this, this question of authorship, Um, of books in the Bible or or biblical scholarship in general when it comes to understanding how these books were written or who wrote them or the context and the historical circumstances and all all those kind of things. Uh, Let me give you some suggestions to try to help you be discerning. Um, I think I have four suggestions here and and I'll start with two sort of negative (laughs) suggestions, if you will. Uh, Number one, don't Google your question, right? Don't, don't, when you're trying to learn who wrote the Book of Isaiah, don't just Google it. don't Don't search the internet for who wrote the book. <laughs> um, if if you need to know how many seats are on a Boeing seven thirty seven, that's a good question to Google. If you need to know what day of the week Christmas fell on in 1987, right? Google is awesome for those kind of things. Wikipedia is awesome for stuff like that. But when it comes to these really nuanced and complex questions like who wrote a specific book of the Bible, Uh, Google isn't going to be helpful. Just searching the internet and looking up the first three articles um, might lead you down some some really unhelpful paths. So don't just Google this one. Uh, That's the first suggestion I have for you. Um, Second suggestion, uh, be wary of old resources. So let me explain this one. Uh, in the last 50 years or so, there has been so much new work done on biblical manuscripts, um, especially with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Those were discovered in the late 1940s, early 1950s. And so there's been so much done on that. Those connect to the Old Testament. Um, there's been so many, much scholarship done on, on authorship and context and all of those kind of things. And uh, if you... If you need to consult a, a resource or a reference book, let's say, or a textbook type, uh, there's and there's lots of them out there, about the Bible, um, and you end up consulting one that's old, that's older than 50 years old, um, you're going to miss out on so many advancements and new theories and new insights and new discoveries and new dialogue that has taken place about these issues. Um and, uh, and I say this, this is important, um, it's not that you're going to go looking for an old reference book or an old textbook, but the reason I mention this is because so many older works of biblical scholarship are no longer bound by copyright laws, and so they're freely available in the public domain, especially available on the internet, in online formats. Uh, So here's a great example. If you've ever done much Bible study um, or you've ever searched for Bible commentaries online, you might have come across a very famous commentary called Matthew Henry's Commentary. Uh, It's six volumes, and it's extremely extensive, and it goes through every single verse of the Bible with all kinds of explanations from this biblical scholar or theologian named Matthew Henry. Um... And so you, you might turn there looking for some answers, but here's what you need to know. This very famous commentary was written in 1706, over 300 years ago. And that's not to say that it's totally useless now, or it doesn't not can provide some benefit. It's just to say that when it comes to biblical scholarship... So much has happened in the last 300 years that it's just not helpful to consult an older resource like this. So just be wary of, of when resources that you consult were written and be wary of of old resources, especially ones that are just free or available online. They're probably old and probably outdated. Uh, here's a third suggestion, and these are more positive, Um the best works for you to consult on issues like this, if I, I'm going to be super honest here, are big and long and somewhat academic. And that's just because this is such a big and complex and nuanced topic. And so I'm hesitant to give you recommendations because the recommendations I'm going to give you are, are going to be big and long and, and somewhat academic because I think they should be good. I want you to consult really good Recommendations. But if you happen to be somebody who's listening and you're just wanting to dig into this and tackle this issue head on, here's two recommendations. Um, a book called The Old Testament by Richard Hess. Uh, Dr. Hess is actually a, a longtime professor at Denver Seminary here in Denver and world renowned, world respected um, on issues like this. And so he wrote this uh, introduction to the Old Testament. And it goes through every book of the Old Testament and addresses all of the issues of authorship and background and archaeology and, and all kinds of great stuff. Um, and then in the New Testament, there's a, a new book that came out not too long ago called The New Testament in Its World. And it's co-authored by N.T. Wright and Michael Bird. And uh, it's probably the most well-known introduction to the New Testament that's come out in recent years. Uh, N.T. Wright is is probably one of the foremost New Testament scholars in the world. Uh, Michael Bird is an outstanding scholar and theologian from Australia. Um, and so, again, these are both of these are really long books. I think they're like both each one is eight or nine hundred pages each. So you're you're not going to just read this at night laying in bed, um, but it's a reference book. Uh, you're going to invest in it. You're going to keep it the rest of your life. And when you're in a season of your life and you're trying to study the book of Galatians or some book from the Old Testament, you can pull this book out, read the chapter or the introduction to that book um, from one of these reference books, and it'll be really helpful for you. Uh, number four. For, uh, the fourth big suggestion I have for you is this. For the majority of people the easiest and simplest resource for you to find sort of quick and easy answers about authorship for each of the specific books of the Bible, the easiest and simplest resource is going to be to use a study Bible. And uh, I would recommend the NIV study Bible. We use the NIV at at New Denver and uh, I've used the NIV study Bible for a long time. I have it and I, I just, I think it's one of the best, if not the best one that's out there Um, and, and here's how study Bibles work. If if you're familiar with them or or, or you're unfamiliar with them, it's basically a Bible. So it has the Bible, but it also has footnotes at the bottom or, or notes at the bottom and the notes correspond to the verses at the top and the notes are written by scholars and they offer commentary or explanations about things that you read in the Bible at the top. And then more importantly, every single book of the Bible has an introduction Um, And in these introductions, you get questions like who wrote this book, when it was written, who it was written to, why it was written, all of those sorts of things. So in one book, one volume, you have the Bible, and then you have all of this extra stuff that can be really helpful for you. Now, there's a a couple of limitations of study Bibles, and I want to mention these because these are important. Um, It's almost a couple of warnings as you use a study Bible. The biggest warning is this, don't forget that the study notes The the notes at the bottom and then those introductions at the beginning of each book and and any kind of charts or tables or maps or all those kind of things, don't forget that all of that is written by scholars who have opinions. And their opinions or their conclusions um, hopefully are well-grounded. And I think the the NIV Study Bible is is put together by some really respected and well-known and good scholars But there's still scholars with opinions, and some of those opinions or some of those explanations or some of their conclusions may or may not be right. And what is dangerous, I think, when you use a study Bible, is that those opinions or those scholars' conclusions, those study notes, they show up on the same page as the Bible text itself. And so in this really subtle way, everything starts blending together for most of us. I mean, we know there's a difference between the Bible and the notes, but it starts kind of blending it together, and we almost don't realize it, but we can begin to take these study notes and the introductions at the beginning of the book and the charts that are trying to be helpful in addition to the Bible, we can begin to take those things as gospel truth, right? almost as if they're factual, almost as if they're they're part of the Bible, as if the original author of 1 Corinthians included these study notes and this introduction for our benefit before we read his book, right? And that's just not true. These notes are the best attempts by some scholars to provide answers to some of the questions we have when we read the Bible, but we have to realize that limitation. And, and personally, I, I don't, I don't always agree with every single study note or the answers they give all of the time. Uh, quick example, I think the NIV Study Bible is great, um, but there's this long chart at the beginning of the Old Testament that offers a chronology of the Old Testament. It's like a timeline, and it tells you when all of the events that took place in the Old Testament happened You know, in history. And it says that the Exodus happened in 1446 B.C., well, that's actually just one theory. In fact, there's two major theories about when the Exodus happened. Uh, the early theory is that it happened in the middle of the 1400s, uh, around you know 1440s. Um, and there's lots of pieces of evidence from the Old Testament and from archaeology and from Egyptian records and things like that to support the early theory. But there's also a late theory And the late theory believes that the Exodus happened in the 1200s, about 200 years later. And there's a whole bunch of evidence that points in that direction that actually supports the late theory, not the early theory. And in all of my study, I've always been fascinated by this topic. It's it's interesting to me. I found that most scholars are split pretty 50-50 when it comes to this issue. There's just evidence on both sides, and some lean towards the early theory, and some lean towards the late theory. Personally, I think the evidence is slightly in favor of a late date, a date of the exodus happening in the 13th century or the 1200s. Um, But in this chart, this timeline, in the beginning of the NIV study Bible, it doesn't even mention the late theory. It just says the exodus happened in 1446. It, It just assumes the early theory. And if all you looked at was this chart to try to figure out when some of these things happened, you would assume that there's no question whatsoever that that's when the Exodus happened. It's just everybody agrees. There's great evidence to support this. It's clear. It's certain. It's 100% positive. It's almost like Moses wrote in his journal on that day, you know, star date, April 3rd, 1446. We're packing for you know, leaving Egypt today, you know, that, that, it's almost like that's what you think, but that's just not the reality at all. Now, in, in defense of the NIV study Bible, since I just offered a little criticism, when you turn to the book of Exodus, on the second or third page of the book of Exodus, there's actually a whole nother chart that describes these two theories. And it gives the evidence for both of them, and it suggests that both of the theories are possible. So that's super helpful. I really like that, and that's one of the reasons I recommend the NIV Study Bible. I think in most places it offers balance, and when there's questions, it sort of offers theories and just kind of lets you figure it out. I just wish they had put that in the chronological chart in the beginning, uh, and they didn't. If you just looked at that chronological timeline, you wouldn't know that. And this gets to another limitation or a warning about study Bibles. There's just not enough space to address the complexity of issues in a lot of depth without creating a Bible that, you know, weighs 40 pounds. So oftentimes in the introductions before each book in a study Bible, they just have a few pages, the scholars just have a few pages to deal with um, when this book was written, who it was written to, and and all the complex historical circumstances that were taking place at that time, and who the author might have been, and different theories behind authorship, and date, and why it was written, and all those kind of things. And and so study Bibles, they just have to be brief. They have to be succinct. There's not a ton of space to do that. And, and sometimes when they address those things, they almost do it in a bullet point-like manner so that you get to the introduction to Genesis and it'll just kind of quickly say, well, traditionally Moses is attributed as the author of Genesis. And then the introduction just moves on when what would be much more helpful is if we also had the qualification, yes, Moses is attributed as the author of Genesis, but in reality, many of these stories existed in oral form, maybe in some written form before Moses And we don't fully understand how they were compiled together or who actually did that or which scribes were involved in that process. But it probably took place under the leadership of Moses. So that's why we say Moses is the author. And you can see how because there's space limitations in a study Bible, it's just too much to put all of those qualifications in or cover all of those nuances in much detail. And as a result, study Bibles can sometimes oversimplify things. And sometimes that's okay. Other times that might be unhelpful. Other times that might ignore some important nuances that we need to know about. So just realize, as much as I recommend a study Bible, and the NIV study Bible is a good one, and I think it can be helpful, there are some limitations or warnings um, when you utilize it. All right. Enough about resources, Uh, There's one main issue I want to explore, and um, that's the issue of agenda. And this is really important because we have to acknowledge that every author has an agenda, especially in the ancient world. Where writing something down was expensive, right? It it took a lot of skill. It was a labor-intensive process. Not anyone could just do it. You you didn't just write a letter to somebody or write a book because you were bored, right? You you did it for a very purposeful reason. There was always an agenda. And this word agenda um, often has negative overtones, Um, Or undertones, I guess, Uh, as if the agenda always has to be something nefarious or suspicious or with evil intention. Um, But that's not true at all. Agenda just means what's the why behind this writing? What's the purpose? What compelled the author to spend the time and money and energy to write these things down? What was the author trying to achieve? And as we figure out that, does what we learn about the agenda of the author, about the purpose, what the to do, does what we learn actually enhance the trustworthiness of the writing or does it diminish it? So uh, like in the last message, we don't have time to go through every book in the Bible um, and talk about the agenda of every single writer, but um, we, we can explore a few important ones. So I just want to give you a few examples today that will hopefully help you understand why this issue is so important. So let's start with the ones we talked about in the last message. Uh, There are 13 letters in the New Testament that are attributed to Paul, the Apostle Paul. And as we said, some of them may have been written by Paul himself. There's good evidence for that. Others may have been written by a secretary who helped Paul out, or a coworker or someone else writing on behalf of Paul. But when it comes to these letters, these 13 different letters, there's always a specific purpose or agenda for each one. And they're actually usually very different. They're not all the same. And I want to give you a word that Bible scholars use when they talk about these letters in the New Testament. Um, And this word is not super technical. It's not going to be mind-blowing. It's not going to be a game-changer for you. In fact, when I share with you this word, it's going to be a bit unsurprising because um, it's a word that describes how and why each of these letters were written, and it's a concept that, that we just tend to forget or we're not even aware of as simple as it is. Scholars describe these letters as occasional letters. That's the word occasional. <laughs> now, um not in the sense we use the word sometimes, not in the sense that Paul just decided to occasionally write letters, like he just wrote them every now and then whenever there was a whim, right? Um no, occasional when it's used in this context means that when Paul wrote a letter, it's tied to a specific occasion. It's tied to a specific circumstance, something that was going on. So we could even call these circumstantial letters, right? Something had happened that Paul was responding to or that provoked Paul. There was some occasion that provoked Paul to write the letter that he wrote. So uh, in the letter that Paul writes to Philemon, we read a little bit of that um, in the last message he is actually addressing a situation that's happened. Uh, so this guy named Philemon had a slave named Onesimus. Slavery or, or sort of um, bonded servants. It was a little different than uh, in the modern world, but it existed uh, a lot back then. So Philemon had a slave named Onesimus, and Onesimus had run away from Philemon. And Paul is in another part of of uh, the Roman Empire, and Paul somehow meets Onesimus. Paul tells Onesimus about Jesus. Onesimus becomes a Christian, and then Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon, carrying this letter with him, and the letter says to Philemon, by the way, you need to accept Onesimus back. I know he ran away from you. I hope you will forgive him. You need to accept him back. And by the way, Onesimus is now a follower of Jesus and I don't think you should make him your slave anymore. I realize what he did to you wasn't right or fair in the way things work in our culture, but I think you need to accept him back and treat him as a brother, not as a slave. And so this is a very specific and personal letter that Paul is writing to address a very specific occasion and circumstance. Uh, In the letter of Galatians, Paul says at the very beginning, you can go read it yourself, I'll just paraphrase. He basically says, hey, I've heard that some of you, my friends in Galatia, he's writing to people that live in this area of what is modern-day Turkey, it was called Galatia then, Um, I've heard that some of you are abandoning the grace that God has given you. I heard that some of you are confused about what you believe. I heard that some of you are trying to earn God's favor by now doing certain things or obeying certain laws that God never even gave you or asked you to do. And then Paul in his letter goes on to address all of these very specific things that he's heard about them and what they need to do about it. So The letter that we call Galatians is tied to a very specific circumstance or occasion that had taken place. In uh, his first letter to the Corinthians, we call it 1 Corinthians, right? Paul basically says this, paraphrasing again, I've heard there are all sorts of problems in the church there in Corinth, Corinth in ancient Greece. He says, I received a report, right? And we don't know if the report came in person Maybe somebody had visited the church and then came and met Paul in person and told him what was going on. Or, or Paul had received a letter. We think that's uh, possible from some people at the church in Corinth saying we got problems. But Paul says, look, I've heard about all of these problems. Uh, I, I hear there's a guy sleeping around in your church. And uh, here's what you need to do about that. I heard that there's a conflict between two people and they're fighting with each other and other people in the church are taking sides and it's causing all kinds of division. And here's what you need to do about that. Oh, and I heard that your worship services are kind of chaotic. They're not organized. They're not very reverent. You've had problems taking communion together as a church. And so Paul writes this really long letter where he lists problem after problem with his proposed solutions or instructions to them about how to deal with these things. So Paul is addressing very specific issues in light of this very specific occasion. Now, I'm not going to go through the rest, but knowing that agenda or getting a better understanding of that agenda for each of his letters when you read it is really helpful in a few different ways. Uh, For starters, it it humanizes Paul. right? You you see this guy who's trying to lead these communities from a distance that are difficult to lead. Uh, It also helps us understand some of the background of these letters. So sometimes we come across things in these letters that doesn't make sense, but once you understand the occasion or the background or what's happening, it makes a lot better sense. It also helps us to not always universalize these letters, meaning these are not letters written to all Christians, everywhere, with universal instructions that apply to everyone that we should take literally all of the time. I mean, more often than not, Paul is offering very specific solutions or answers or instructions to very specific issues in specific churches, Now, that does not mean we can't learn from those instructions. It doesn't mean that some of those instructions might apply to some of us or might be helpful for some of us in our faith today, in our relationship with God today, in our churches and communities of faith today. We just have to remember that these were originally written on specific occasions to specific people, and those people were not us, right? And when you remember and read uh, all the letters in that light, well I mean suddenly these seem like really genuine authentic letters from this guy named Paul to to real and authentic and genuine and messy communities of faith. And and I got to be honest my life can be that messy sometimes too. And all of us have been in churches that can be messy like that. Most churches can get messy like that. And so that makes these letters so much more trustworthy to speak to us and for us to understand them today. Now, let's talk about the gospel accounts because there's four gospel accounts. um, And these are basically stories or biographies of Jesus' life. And uh, the word biography... um, can be uh, misleading. Sometimes we think of a work of history or a biography as an objective account, as if there is a neutral, objective historian that is just giving us the facts about this person's life that they're writing about. Um, Now, my background is in history. I teach history in a university setting, and I can assure you There is no such thing as a neutral, objective historian. Everyone, including every author, every historian, has a perspective. You cannot write a work of history from an objective, non biased, non prejudiced, non anything standpoint. The word standpoint means you are standing in a specific point. So anybody writing anything is writing it from their own perspective. Everyone looks at something else or someone else from their own standpoint, from their own perspective. If I write a history book or a biography, I, I cannot escape the fact that I am seeing the subject matter and interpreting the subject matter from my own perspective. Because I live in a certain time period in the 21st century. I grew up in a certain place. I have certain ethnic and cultural backgrounds. I have certain beliefs. I bring all of these things to the process of writing a work of history. I can't not bring those things. So there's no such thing as a neutral objective historian so the question is not does an author have an agenda when they're writing a work of history or a a biography like the gospel accounts that's just not possible you can't not have an agenda the 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 question we have to ask is, is is actually much more simple than that it's just what is their agenda what what is their agenda and by the way This isn't a big issue in the ancient world. Historians in the ancient world were usually pretty clear about their agendas. Uh, Sometimes a historian was paid uh, or funded or directed or even ordered by the Roman Empire to write a history of the emperor's accomplishments. Well, once you learn that, I mean, you kind of now know their agenda, right? you know they're probably not going to include any of the emperor's failures. <laughs> you know they're they're going to highlight certain things about what the emperor did that went well, and they're going to skip over other things that the emperor did that did not go so well. Now, it does not mean that everything that historian wrote is untrue or wrong or that we should throw it out or that we shouldn't listen to it or that we can't learn anything from it. I mean, if that's the case then we wouldn't know anything at all about the ancient world. Because every work of history is written by someone in the ancient world with an agenda, right? So historians today can take those works and we can read them with a critical eye. We can sort through everything they say. We can better understand what they're saying, what they're telling us, what, what we can learn, what's not being said, what's not being discussed, what's not being covered, but but everyone has an agenda. And the, the reason I'm spending so much time on this is because sometimes there are critics of the Bible or religion or Christianity, and, and I hear something like this from them. Well, the gospel writers all had an agenda. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Of course they did. Everybody had an agenda. Well, uh, the gospel writers just wanted to spread their message about Jesus. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I know. That was kind of their whole purpose. That's, that's what they were all about, spreading their message about Jesus. Well, the gospel writers were all followers of Jesus. And so we're not sure we can trust them. We're only getting their perspective on what happened. Yeah, yeah, I know. We are getting their perspective. And they were all followers of Jesus. And their perspective, quite honestly, is probably the best perspective if you want to understand what happened. You see, if you want to understand the Holocaust, what do you read? Who do you listen to? You listen to the perspective of Jewish survivors. And you would never discount their perspective because they were the only ones there, right? You would never discount their perspective because they're Jewish. I mean, that would be crazy, right? No, they have the best perspective because they were there. And of course, they're gonna be the most passionate about telling this story. They're gonna be the most passionate about making sure the world never forgets what happened and that passion and their perspective and their background that doesn't act, that doesn't make them less credible to tell this story at all in fact that's what makes them the most credible tellers of that story you see it doesn't make any sense to say that we can't trust the gospel writers because they had an agenda everyone had an agenda And it was their agenda, or at least part of it, that made them the most passionate about recording these stories and getting these stories out to the most people they possibly could. It was actually their agenda that created the possibility for us to even have these stories that we have today. Now, let's look at a couple of examples here. Um, Luke and John are the most clear about their agendas. So let's talk about them real quick and then we'll wrap up. Um, We read the beginning of Luke in the last message and he says that he carefully investigated everything. And then he wrote it all down so that his friend Theophilus would know the truth or know the certainty or, or have confidence in what Theophilus had been taught. So it's clear Theophilus is a Christian. And Theophilus has been taught these stories about Jesus, but uh, perhaps Theophilus is having doubts. And so Luke decides he's going to do research and he's going to work to address these doubts. Now, Theophilus might just be a stand in. It's not that Theophilus doesn't exist. It's that Theophilus might just be representative of a much larger group of Christians that that Luke isn't just writing to Theophilus. Theophilus is representative of a whole group of people that Luke is seeing and learning about and and talking to and hearing from. They're new Christians and new Christians that that are having some questions and wondering, is, is what they've been told or the stories they've heard about Jesus, are they actually true? And so Luke decides, I'm going I'm to do some research and some work, and I'm going to write all of this down so that you can have more confidence and assurance that the things you have believed about Jesus really are true and really did happen. Now, John, the gospel writer John, is less Uh, technical (laughs) in the way he describes it. He doesn't talk about carefully investigating and all. He doesn't do that. Um, And he's more theological. And and in fact, he's even more direct when he describes his purpose or his agenda when he wrote his book. We think John probably wrote his gospel account last. And uh, it's it's different um, than the other three gospel accounts in a lot of ways. And he includes his purpose or his agenda at the very end of his book. After telling all of these stories of Jesus' life and concluding with Jesus rising from the dead, here's what John says. This is chapter 20, uh, starting in verse 30 of John. Um, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. (laughs) Basically, John is saying, look, I could have written so much more. Like I could have included so many more stories that I've heard and that I saw because I was there, right? But I gotta wrap this thing up. It's getting long. I'm running out of papyrus, right? Maybe John is at the end of his scroll and he realizes like he's gotta wrap things up. So Jesus performed many other signs which are not recorded in this book. But these, John says, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You see, John is not trying to hide his agenda at all. He could not be more direct and clear. I want people to experience life, true life, and I think that the true life is found in believing and following Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God, and so that's why I wrote this book. I wrote this book so that you can read and know these stories and that in hearing and reading these stories, you will come to the same conclusion that I came to, that Jesus is the Messiah. You see, John is, is super clear about his agenda and that agenda doesn't need to cast doubt or raise any suspicion about the stories he's sharing Now, there might be other reasons. You you might come across other reasons or have other evidence or other questions for maybe not believing some of the stories he's sharing. But just because he has an agenda, that doesn't undermine it at all. It doesn't undermine his credibility. It doesn't undermine his trustworthiness. In fact, I find it quite refreshing and honest that he's very clear and open about his agenda. He doesn't hide his agenda. In fact, it's why he's so Passionate about writing it all down. It's the reason that we actually have this book because he does have an agenda. Now, those are a few examples. We could go through others. Uh clearly the Psalms were all recorded because they were literally used as prayers and songs for worship in the community of Israel. Uh, so the agenda is pretty clear for the scribes that put all these psalms together, like we need a hymn book. <laughs> We need a hymnal. Like the book of Psalms is basically Israel's hymnal or, or hymn book in, in ancient Israel. Um, or the book of Deuteronomy is fascinating. The book of Deuteronomy is like a contract. Uh, it's described as this long speech that Moses gives right before the people of Israel enter into the promised land. And it actually repeats a whole bunch of stuff that we've already read in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Now, those can be long books, and so if you don't get through all of them, I get it. But if you get to Deuteronomy, you're like, haven't I read this before? Aren't these a bunch of the same? like the Ten Commandments show up in Deuteronomy again, a whole bunch of other laws we already read in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers are repeated. And and Moses is giving the speech, and he's going through all these laws, and you hear him basically say throughout the speech, again, paraphrasing, right? It, and all this gets written down, and it becomes the book of Deuteronomy. Moses is basically saying, here are all the things that you people of Israel have to do when you live in the promised land. Are you going to do it? And the people are saying, yeah, we're going to do it. And you're only going to worship one God, right? Yep, we're only going to worship one God. And you're not going to make any idols, right? Nope, we're not going to make any idols. And you're going to keep the Sabbath, and you're going to take care of the poor in the land, take care of widows and orphans, and follow all the other instructions that we've been given. Yes, yes, we will all do that. And if you do all of those things, when you live in the promised land, here's all the benefits you're going to reap. And if you don't do all of those things, here are all the consequences you're going to suffer. Do you understand that? And the people are going, yeah, yeah, we got it. And then it says the sun and the moon and the stars, they're witnesses to the commitment that you're making today to do all of the things that you say you're going to do. And when you take this book of Deuteronomy and you study it and you look at other ancient literature, you begin to see that it follows the exact same form as ancient contracts or treaties that are made between a king and his subject. And so you have all of these elements of a contract, and each party is agreeing to do different things, and here's what's going to happen if somebody breaks the contract. And it becomes so clear that this is the function of the book of Deuteronomy. This is the agenda if you will, of the book of Deuteronomy. To be the contract that Israel is signing with God before they enter the promised land. That you are going to be our God, Israel, and we will be your people. And if that wasn't clear in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, let's make sure to write it down and make it really clear in this contract-like document that we now call Deuteronomy. And so if you go back and read Deuteronomy, it's like, oh, that's why it's written the way it is. That's why it repeats so many things that we already heard in Exodus Leviticus and Numbers. That's why it gets bogged down in details and that's why it's so tedious. It's it's like when you sign a lease agreement for your apartment, right? You kind of just skim over all that stuff because it just gets so detailed and tedious. That's why there's this long section at the very end about what happens if the Israelites break The contract. And suddenly the book of Deuteronomy doesn't look weird anymore. It doesn't look repetitive anymore. It doesn't look tedious anymore. It doesn't seem boring anymore. It it actually makes a lot of sense. It fits the context. This is a crucial moment in the life of Israel. They're about to enter and finally do. And and Moses wants to make clear, you understand that you're making a commitment, right? Right? And it's almost as if suddenly this book that can seem boring to us, once we understand the agenda, it becomes even that much more authentic and genuine. Even if we don't know very much about the actual scribes that wrote all of this contract down. Now, let's stop there for today. I could keep going, but... This is where one of those really big textbooks I mentioned uh, in the beginning could help or where getting a study Bible could help. Um, And of course, all of this leads to another question. If we have all of these ancient writings from the Israelites, and then we have all of these writings from people who became followers of Jesus in the first century, if we have all of these writings, how did they go from just being individual letters and biographies and histories and writings and books? How did they go from that to being part of what we call the Bible? And who decided which books made it in and which books didn't? Well, that's the question we'll tackle next time.